0: Thanks for checking out the YVF podcast today. If this is your first time listening in with us, we want you to know that you are loved. Wherever you're joining us from, we hope this message encourages you, builds your faith, and helps you in whatever season of life you are in. Now here's Pastor Kevin. about the different Jewish holidays that come in the fall. And today we're going to talk about the Day of Atonement, what's called Yom Kippur, which actually is from this Tuesday evening, uh, October the 4th, through to Wednesday evening, October the 5th. So that, that's kind of the impetus for talking about these holidays right now, is that's the season that we're in. And the title of the series, I'm just going to do three messages in this series, is A Season of Hope. So I didn't reprint the. Little chart that you got in the bulletin yesterday. Maybe you still have that. If you do, you can still refer to that. Um, But uh, you'll remember that there are seven Jewish holidays that are commanded or feast days that are commanded in the scripture, especially in Leviticus uh, 23. They're all laid out, including the Sabbath day, uh, which is the foundation for all of those. And so Yom Kippur is the sixth of these, the second to the last. And each one of these, I showed you last week, how they the, the spring holidays were fulfilled exactly to the day uh, with uh, the first coming of Jesus. And with the fall holidays, we can expect that to be the case with the second coming of Jesus. That doesn't mean that we know exactly that Jesus will come back on that exact day because as we went over last week it all depends on when the new moon was and he said no man knows the day or the hour and uh, uh, he said that that those times will be cut short so there's a lot of factors that would go into that and we, we truly don't know the exact day or hour that Jesus is coming but we should know the season that we're living in. We should know the time that we're living in. And that song we sang is just perfect for that, that, uh, you know, I don't know about dancing on a rising sun, but, you know, that I kind of like that picture that we should have that kind of joy and excitement. Yeah, and I'm just not a very good dancer, but that kind of joy and excitement in our hearts as we look to the future, this should truly be a season of hope for us. So we'll be talking about Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word this morning. I just pray that you'd open our eyes to see the sacrifice that you brought forth when you went to the cross to die for our sin. I pray, Lord, that even as we come to your table today uh, at the end of this service to receive the cup and to receive the bread, to receive your body and to receive your blood, that we would have a deeper and more lasting understanding of this covenant meal, of the covenant that we live in, that we walk in together with you, that we are joined to you, Lord, as one. I just pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts and fill our hearts with courage, fill our hearts with hope as we face the days that we live in today. In Jesus' name, amen. So, to begin with, uh, if you have your the notes that are on the back of the bulletin, that should be there, but there are four passages of scripture in the Old Testament that I want to give to you. We're not going to open them or read them because they're pretty long and it would take a lot of time. I just want to give you a summary of these four passages. So, they're there in your bulletin from Exodus chapter 30, Leviticus chapter 16, Leviticus chapter 23, and Numbers chapter 29. All of these chapters talk about the Day of Atonement. There there are others, but these are the main ones. The Day of Atonement, that's what we call it in English. I'll explain why in a minute. But it's called in uh, Hebrew, Yom Kippur. And usually, even in English, we refer to it as Yom Kippur. So let me give you a brief summary of what happens on the Day of Atonement. Number one, all worshipers are commanded to do absolutely no work at all. With the other holidays or the other feast days, it says that you should do no laborious work. So there would be certain things you'd be allowed to do, like make your coffee in the morning or whatever you need to do just for your life, but you would not do any laborious work like on any normal Sabbath day. But this is a special Sabbath, and it's commanded whatever that meant to them uh, then, Uh, It is commanded that we do no work at all. Now, I'm not preaching about that you need to do no work at all this Tuesday to to Wednesday. If you want to, that's fine with me. You can just lay in bed, whatever you want to do. But what we're talking about here is this understanding that this covenant that we have with God, this is not a covenant that I worked for, that you worked for, that I can do anything about. We've been brought into this covenant by the obedience of Jesus Christ, the high priest, He has done all of the work. And as he said on the cross, it is finished. And there's nothing I can do uh, to, to make myself worthy of this. I've been brought in, we've been brought into this covenant by the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the son of man, which means he represents all mankind before God. And he's the son of God, which means he represents God for us. He is God in the flesh. The God, man, Jesus Christ. So from the evening of the ninth until the evening of the 10th day of the 7th month on the Hebrew calendar that's given to us in scripture, uh, the worshipers are commanded to do absolutely no work. They have no part in this except just to worship. Likewise, each one of them, all the worshipers are commanded to humble themselves and to fast from all food for this time. Now, there's different kinds of fasts in the scripture, but this was a complete fast that you didn't eat anything for those 24 hours. Uh, Then, in addition to that, each person who who is in the community of worshipers, each believer was commanded to bring an offering of one half shekel. And a half shekel is not very much money. But they were commanded to bring an offering, and this symbolizes the worship that we bring to God. And the really interesting thing about it in the commands that are given, the half shekel that was to be brought, it had to be exactly one half shekel for every single member of the community, and it made no difference whether they're rich or rich. Or poor. There wasn't some kind of structured system where if you're rich you give more, or if you're poor you give less, because it's symbolic of our redemption, of our uh, being purchased by the blood of Jesus. And it makes no difference who you are. If you're uh, you know a little baby, if you're 90 something years old, if you're a man, if you're a woman, if you're in a wheelchair, if you can you know run and and. and and jump like you're in high school. It, It doesn't matter who you are. We each belong to the Lord, and we've all been purchased with the same price. And we need to understand that our part in this is so insignificant and so small compared to what Jesus has done for us. And we're going to be talking about that, our part, which is to worship him. This is our act of worship. Then the rest of the things have to do with the high priest. So the high priest alone... He alone, who of course, I don't need to tell you, is symbolic. He stands as a shadow and as a type of Jesus Christ, our high priest. The high priest alone, he must first bathe ritually and put on clean linen clothing. Remember when Jesus went to John to be baptized, John said, I should not be baptizing you, you should be baptizing me. And Jesus said that we might fulfill all the righteousness. You must baptize me. He had to be washed in the water of the new birth, not because he had sin, but because he was standing in our place. And in following him, we are baptized and washed in the water of the new birth. So the high priest had to go through that first. The next thing that he did is he offered a bull, and I'll talk about the bull in a minute, for his own sin and for the sin of his family. Uh, then some of the seat, uh, some of the blood from this this bull that was offered would be brought in. I don't have time to go over this with you, but you can find little maps and charts in the back of your Bible sometimes. And most of you probably have an understanding of this. But you have the the temple proper, or it would have been the tabernacle in the beginning. You have the outer court where the people gather, and then you have this inner court or this inner temple. Okay, and that's divided in two sections. There's the holy place where the priest would, would go, not the high priest, but in different orders, they would take turns. The priest would go every single day and minister in the holy place. And we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But then there's the holy of holies. And in the holy of holies is the ark of the covenant and the presence of God, a place on top of the holy of holies that's called in English the mercy seat. Okay, the mercy seat. And uh, that, that place between the cherubim is where God said that he will dwell uh, on on the earth. And so in the Holy of Holies, the high priest could only go once a year. So one time a year. So that's what we're talking about. He would offer the the bull, he would take the blood, and he would sprinkle some of the blood on the mercy seat. Okay. The name mercy seat is not very easy to translate, and that's the way it's usually translated into English, but it literally means the place of atonement, the place where God and man meet the location of the presence of God. Then, in addition to that, he would offer a ram, and he would offer seven spotless lambs. All all of these, you know, I could go into great detail, but they all are types and shadows of Jesus' sacrifice upon the cross. So he would offer a ram and seven spotless lambs, and these would be offered as a whole burnt offering unto God. Then the next thing that he would do is really interesting. He would cast lots you know, throw dice. He would cast lots over two goats, okay? The goat is symbolic in the scripture of sin, not because goats are evil. I I like goats, but they're symbolic of sin. You know, and we have an understanding of that, this like in Satanism or something, you've always got goats and all this kind of stuff. So he would cast two lots over the, uh, he would cast lots over the two goats. And depending on how the lot fell, and they trusted that God uh, had control over those lots, and by the way, he does, Uh, One must be sacrificed. One of them would be chosen to be sacrificed, quote, for the Lord. And this was a sin offering. And the blood of that goat would be sprinkled on the horns of the altar of incense and on the mercy seat. Okay? So just hold on to that idea. We're going to talk about the altar of incense. It's the place of worship. That's what I really want to get your, your minds to. So the altar of incense is in the holy place, the outer sanctuary where the priest would serve every day and the mercy seat the ark of the covenant is in the inner sanctuary where they would go where only the high priest could go once a year so he would sprinkle some of this blood on the horns of the altar of incense and on the mercy seat the other goat is the goat which is called he he should be sacrificed and this as i'm quoting to you from our english bibles for the scapegoat a scapegoat is a word that's become a part of you know, our, our vocabulary, and everybody knows what a scapegoat is. And If you, you don't know, it's when you blame somebody who's not guilty for something, and you put all the blame on them <laughs> so that everybody else can go, can go free. They pick out a scapegoat, find somebody to blame. Every kid in here knows what that feels like because every time you get in trouble, you feel like, I'm just a scapegoat. This ain't my fault. You know, everybody remembers that when you were a kid, you get in trouble for something. Their first reaction is, it's not my fault. You know. But um, so we know as you know, what, what this means to be a scapegoat. But in the Hebrew, it's a very interesting term. It literally says it says for Azazel. For Azazel. And Azazel is a name. And Azazel was actually the name of one of these Canaanite gods without going into great detail, which is symbolic of, it was the devil, really, okay? Now, scholars don't really know if they called their devil god Azazel because that means scapegoat and they were putting the blame on him, or if God said this should be sacrificed for Azazel because it would be for Satan, okay? But hold on, don't don't get scared. This is nothing blasphemous in what I'm saying here. This is actually really very interesting. It, do, it doesn't really make any difference. In a sense, what God was saying is one shall be sacrificed for the Lord, and the other goat shall be sacrificed for the devil. That doesn't mean that it was a sacrifice to the devil, okay? And I'll explain this now. So when the high priest would come and they would cast the lots for the two goats, they would be chosen, this one's for the Lord, this is the scapegoat. And then the high priest would put his hands on the goat, only he would do it in a cross-like fashion, which is also very symbolic, and it's several times in the Old Testament. He would put his hands on the goat goats, and he would pronounce all the sin of the people over these goats, everything that they had done that year in ignorance before God, and of course, he didn't have a list where he actually read all the sins because he wouldn't, you know, but he just had some formula where he would pronounce that and he would place the sin on the, the heads of these goats. Okay? And so um, uh, one of the goats would be sacrificed, as I already said, for the Lord. It's bloodshed. But the other goat, the scapegoat, would be sent into the wilderness. He was led into the wilderness, into the desert. Okay? The wilderness in Scripture is the accursed place? Now, I'm not saying our desert's cursed, but everybody knows a desert isn't a place you can live for a long time without water. And in the scripture, the desert, the wilderness, is the the accursed place. And Azazel is like the devil. Okay. And so this scapegoat would be led into the wilderness, never to return. Traditionally, and this doesn't say this in the scripture, but traditionally they would drive it over a cliff so it died. Okay, So they led it into the wilderness, never to return. And so we see, when we put all these pictures together, that the high priest, first of all, he must be without sin himself. He must be without sin himself. Now when uh, we're talking about Aaron or any of the other high priests uh, on this earth, none of them were without sin. But the symbolism of it is that he will be without sin himself by laying down the majesty of the bull. The first thing he would sacrifice is the bull. And the bull is symbolic of power, of strength, and of majesty. Okay? Jesus was obedient unto the cross. He did not consider his equality with God something to be held on to as his own right. Listen to this Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8 says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. What that literally means is he did not regard his equality with God a right that he could demand or something that he could use. The scripture tells us that when he was on the cross, he could have called for legions of angels to deliver him from that cross. I mean, he had any moment, he could have spoke the word and the whole earth would have been flooded again with something, you know. I mean, we know the power that he has as God, but he did not use that power to stop the will of his father in going to the cross. So he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself taking the form of a bond servant, He laid down the majesty of the bull. The bull was sacrificed first. He sacrificed his own will. He sacrificed his own majesty. It begins already, even before this, but we see this in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's crying out to God and he's struggling so much, and nobody will pray with him. They all fall asleep, right? He's crying out with God, to God, and he's struggling so much that the Bible says that his, his sweat was as great drops of blood. Through his pores, blood was coming out physically, literally. And he's crying out to God that if it's possible, let this cup pass away from me. I don't want to go to the cross, It's not my desire or my will. And it wasn't just the physical suffering of the cross. It was the understanding, if you can imagine this, that I will become the scapegoat. All the sin of humanity will be placed upon me. I can't even feel what that must be like to know that crushing uh, burden of carrying the weight of humanity. But we can have a little inkling. None of us likes to carry the blame for something we know we didn't do. You know what I'm saying? But can you imagine for Jesus that struggle with his own will, the sacrifice of the bull, right? And then he said, you know, but Father, not my will, but your will be done. And he, he sacrificed the bull, as we see in the Old Testament. So it says he emptied himself in Philippians 2 taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The worst death there could be. Not just because of the physical pain it would cause, but because it's the death of a criminal. The death of the worst kind of criminal that there could be. So he chose that because that was the will of the Father. So the high priest he lays down the bull. He sacrifices the bull. And then he sacrifices a ram and seven spotless lambs. You know, Jesus is the Lamb of God. And these, are bring, they, these appease God as a burnt sacrifice. So Christ takes the sin upon himself. And last of all, he becomes the goat. He's forsaken by his father. He cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The Father God forsakes him when he's on the cross. That's not just you know, poetic rhetoric in the Bible. That's what happened on the cross. And the Bible tells us that he descended into the lower parts of the earth. Now, as we've been going through Revelation, I've been talking about this, and sometimes we just you know, loosely say he went to hell. And, and the way and, and that's actually correct if we're using hell in the right term, but hell's actually not a very good Bible. Uh, term anyway, but um, what, what I mean is just, I don't want to get into all the explanations, it's better to say Hades and, you know, name the places as they are, but he went into the lower parts of the earth, he went into the wilderness for us, and it says in the scripture that he has the keys of del- death and of Hades, so he went in there, not as a sacrifice to Satan, but as a sacrifice for conquering the kingdom of darkness for destroying the power of the devil, because the power of the devil is death, that's what he keeps us in fear of all of our lives, everything that you've missed out on life, if you've missed out on something, that you wanted and you regret that you missed out on that, it had to do with you being afraid of death, okay, It's always like that. Maybe not physical death, but financial death, or the death of my reputation, or the death of this, or the death of that. And we stand before things that God would have for us, but we don't have the courage to go into those things because of the fear of death. And that's the power that Satan has. But Jesus broke that power on the cross. And so, the day of atonement. So let me talk about the word atonement for a minute. If you take the word atonement apart, it's just a good old English word, and it means literally just at-one-ment. That's actually what it's designed to mean. At-one-ment. In his 1526 translation, almost 500 years ago, uh, Tyndall, when he translated uh, the scripture into English, he based it upon Wycliffe's 14th century translation that was almost 200 years older than his, and in Wycliffe's translation he used this old English word, one meant, one meant," and being made at one with God. And so the word atonement means in English, and it's a very, very good translation of the idea of the Hebrew. The word atonement in English means to be made at one with God. That's what this table is about. That's what this bread and this, this, and this cup is about. Jesus said, this is my body, which is broken for you, that you would be one with me. God and man at table sat together, that we would be one with him. It's the meaning of the word righteousness, that we are made right in the sight of God. That's what righteousness is. The Hebrew has a meaning of being reconciled with God, being made at one with him. But this can only happen through the sacrifice. It can only happen through the blood. In the scripture, this word atonement, day of atonement, is always used in the plural. And even though it's commonly uh, referred to, the day is referred to as Yom Kippur, it would actually technically be Yom HaKippurim, because it's plural, and that's how the plural would come out. But this is actually also very interesting, because it signifies that the one high priest would make one single sacrifice that would cover every multiple person on, on the earth who believes, who receives that sacrifice. So there is a sacrifice to make each one of us one with God. No matter how bad your sin may be, uh, no matter how good you may think you are, no matter how poor you are, how rich you are, we all stand on equal footing before God. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So I want to talk to you now, just I'm giving you these elements and we're going to put them together about hope. Because Yom Kippur is all about hope. It's all about resurrection. When we talk about Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, and as you've listened to everything I, I say, you would think that this feast day has already been fulfilled when Jesus went to the cross. But that's not true. That's just the beginning. It is still being fulfilled in our lives as you know, you know from from uh, practical experience you're not perfect yet are you <laughs> we still sin don't we you know and we still live in bodies that get sick and that eventually are going to wear out and die that's our lives on this earth so our redemption is not complete our redemption has only uh, been begun and there's a very real understanding in Scripture. There's three ways in scripture, three ways in scripture of talking about salvation. One of them is we have been saved. And that's true. It's very true to say I am saved by the blood of the Lamb. Hallelujah. But there's another understanding. We are being saved. And that's true also. And then there's a third understanding that you'll find in the New Testament that we will be saved. Which is true also, because the redemption is complete only in the resurrection. Only when we are raised from the dead, and we are made spirit, soul, and body in the likeness of God, and return to what we were created to be, for we were created in the image of God. And that wasn't just a spiritual thing, it's spirit, soul, and body. A lot of people have a real negative image about their body, okay? And it's easy to do because you stand there looking in the mirror and you compare yourself to other people and you know things and certain stuff, you know. And, 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 but don't have a negative image about your body. Yeah, this old thing's going to wear out and you're going to die someday. But it's going to be raised from the dead. And it's going to be glorified. And you will not be floating in heaven with angels' wings playing harps for all eternity. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says you're going to live in a glorified and resurrected body. And I don't know everything that it's going to be like, but I know when Jesus raised from the dead, um, they were able to recognize him and know him. So I think you're going to kind of look like you look like now, okay? And, I, and I, I don't know what it's going to be like. Sometimes we say, and there's going to be no scars in heaven except the scars of Jesus. Well, I don't even know that for sure. The Bible just doesn't even tell us, but it will be glorified okay, without sickness and disease, without all the things that that we have now. And this resurrection is what's called the great hope of the promise of God given to the fathers. You remember, we've gone through the book of Acts, and in the book of Acts, the word hope is really important in that book. It keeps coming up over and over again. And so you have uh, three places in the book of Acts where... Uh, it talks about the hope of this world. And uh, in in all three of those places, it, it shows us that the hope of this world is a hope for security, temporary security in this life. A hope to have wealth. A hope to have enough money. A hope to make something that will give you security for the future. A hope to preserve our lives on this earth. Remember when they were on that ship, it says they gave up all hope. They they weren't talking about the hope of the resurrection. They were just talking about the hope of preserving their life on this earth. And if you were to go around and do a survey of people today, maybe even in this room, you'd find a whole lot of people people that would describe hope as something like that. Well, I hope this happens. I hope that happens. I hope everything will be okay, right? Right? But that's not the hope that we have in the Scripture. The hope that we have in the Scripture is summed up in Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, that says, Christ in you is the hope of glory. The hope that we have in the Scripture that's described in uh, the book of Acts in chapter 2, verse 26, chapter 23, verse 6 Chapter 24, verse 15, Chapters, uh, chapter 26, verses six and seven, and chapter 28, verse 20. It's a running theme throughout the book of Acts, it is something eternal. It's resurrection, life from the dead. To dwell with God at one. Our atonement at onement is not complete until we are res- resurrected from the dead. Do you know the scripture says that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God? And I know that you think that if Jesus, you know, we have these things, well, if Jesus just walked through that door in his glory today or something like that. No, if Jesus were to stand here in all of his glory, every one of us would fall like dead people on the ground. We're not able to stand in the glory in the presence of God. And sometimes in worship, you sense that and you feel that, that this is too much for me physically. It's just overwhelming, the glory and the power of God. And sometimes God, it doesn't happen all the time, but sometimes things happen in your life that are so miraculous. They, they don't lift you up with pride. They humble you to the point of almost of death. You can't believe that God is so good, that God loves you that much. And so we have to be changed physically. Also, we have to be resurrected from the dead to be completely at one with God. And that is the hope of the resurrection that runs throughout the scripture. It's fixed on the firm promise of God in the word. And we realize this by faith in his word. Paul said in chapter 28 of Acts, verse 20, we just read this, I am wearing this chain for the sake of, of the hope of Israel. I am suffering, I am in prison, and I will be put to death. And he repeats this, for the sake of the hope of Israel. There's a hope in this world, and that hope of this world, we see this in the book of Acts, from the, you know, from the day of Pentecost on forward. The hope of this world is completely at odds with the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. The hope of this world will always make war against Christ in you the hope of glory. Because your hope is fixed on something eternal, and that eternal means the destruction of these things that are temporal. And the hope of this world is fixed on temporal things, temporary things, money, preservation of life, all these things, and it's a war on the inside of us. Do we have the courage to follow the hope of Israel? Would we wear a chain for the sake of the hope of Israel. Would we lay down our lives for the sake of the hope of Israel? Go with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I want to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 about this hope, about this resurrection. It's what Yom Kippur is all about. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. Paul says to the Corinthians, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you. Which, you also, which also you received, in which also you stand. So he's going to describe to them now the simplicity of the gospel that he preached, that you stand in, and that you are saved by, by which you are also saved. If, we don't like these words if, but it's there, by which you are saved also, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So it's possible to believe in vain. You have to hold fast. How you finish a race is of much more importance than how you started it. For I delivered to you as of first importance, this is the priority, what I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. Everything's based on the word. And that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and then he goes on with that theme and look at verse twelve. He's going to focus on the resurrection. Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. Now I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand this morning and answer this question. And I don't think anybody would if I did. Maybe somebody would. But do any of you go around saying that that there's no resurrection from the dead? I don't think you'd probably come here on Sunday morning, unless your parents twisted your arm and made you come here on Sunday morning, if if you actually said that there's no resurrection from the dead. And... I'm not really sure who there in Corinth was going around saying that there's no resurrection from the dead. But they had this false doctrine going around. But I don't want you to look at them in Corinth and say, Oh, we're so much better than them because we all believe in the resurrection of the dead. We believe in the hope of Israel that we will be raised from the dead. Because the fact is, and we'll see this in a minute, that maybe we're not saying that with our mouths, but quite often we're saying that with our lives. Quite often we're saying that we're, we're living our lives in a way that, that signifies that what happens to us on this earth and in this time is more important than all of eternity. We still live and walk in a fear of death. I mean, when the whole pandemic thing started, let's just be honest, they're just like, like wildfire. A fear of death began to spread through our society and it affected our lives also this fear of death, and then you start trying to shake yourself and thinking, well, what am I so afraid of? You know, for years we've been preaching and talking about, you know, that, uh, uh, our, that we've died in Christ, that uh, whoever believes in me uh, shall not die and shall live forever. I'm the resurrection and the life, and all these phrases that we speak about, when death is looking you in the face, or you think it is anyway, then you, this fear comes over you. You know, nobody actually wants to die. There's a desire and a will inside of us of self-preservation. There's a bull inside of all of us. But that's why it says in Philippians, have this attitude in you that Christ Jesus had also. If he could do it, you can do it. I mean, you—you know what? how many of us are demanding our rights before God instead of asking and praying in faith? Just, just think about those things. Jesus didn't demand his rights. He said, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But since it's not, I want your will to be done and not my will be done. There are some things in life that are worth dying for. There are some things in life that are worth dying for. And if you put your physical life above your spiritual life, you will be sorely disappointed in the end. Because everyone dies eventually. But if you believe in the resurrection, then you know it's not really just death. It's actually, as Paul says, a going to sleep, a putting your body to bed because you're going to be woke up by a trumpet that's going to blow and you'll raise from the dead. So he said, if there is no resurrection of the dead, verse 13, then not even Christ has been raised. So when we live our lives in a way that seems to show that that we think what is going on in this world, is, in this time, is more important than eternity. When we compromise, when we live our lives, and you think, 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 just think about uh, a story in the Old Testament that probably everybody knows. You've got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And uh, they're all supposed to bow down whenever the music plays, bow down to this image of, of you know, King uh, Nebuchadnezzar. And when the music plays, they don't bow down. And there's probably, I guess it's like, you know, one of these big concerts. And there's probably thousands of people all around them. And they all bow down. These three guys are standing there. Well, that's the moment when everything's decided. You know, I don't think they went to the concert thinking, we're going to stage a protest and show old Nebuchadnezzar, you know, whose side we're on. We're on God's side, not on his side. No, they went to the concert because they had to. It said that everybody had to go. They just put them in buses and took them there. Not literally, but, you know, the chariot buses. And they put them there at the concert. I don't think they really knew what was going to happen. You know, I hear the music plays. Everybody bows down, and they don't bow down. Why? Because they've already bowed their hearts before God, and they're not going to bow down to any earthly king. They're not going to bow down before this image. And they say to Nebuchadnezzar, You know, if it's God's will for us to die, then we're going to get burned up in your furnace, of course. But if it's not God's will, then then there's nothing you can do about it. And they did not get burned up in the furnace, right? But the story would have been the same even if they had got burned up in the furnace. Because they weren't worried about dying physically. They were worried about compromising their conscience and their soul before God. Because there is a death worse than physical death. Jesus said... Um, you know, that you should not fear the person who can kill your body. You should fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in the fire of hell. And yet we live our lives fearing the one who can destroy our body, fearing disease, fearing poverty, fearing, you know, crime, fearing this, fearing that, fearing, you know, the politicians, you know, all all kinds of stuff that that we're afraid of. And so if we live our lives in that way, listen to what he says, then what you're saying is that Christ has not been raised from the dead either. Because if we're not going to be raised from the dead, then Christ wasn't raised from the dead. That's how at one we've been made with Jesus. Atonement. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. It's a pretty radical argument. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is worthless, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, he's talking about those who have died, have perished. And if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, then we are of all men most to be pitied. There's no one that should be so pitied as a Christian who lives his life carnally, who lives his life as if everything that's most important is what's right in front of our face here on this earth. There's nothing to be more pitied than a Christian who lives his life afraid of death, not walking in love, because perfect love casts out all fear. But the fear of death keeps a person tormented all of his life. Faith and courage go hand in hand. Love and courage go hand in hand. Look at verse 29. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? Well, I don't have time to talk about that, but this is not talking about what the Mormons do. Just letting you know that right hand. And whatever Paul is talking about is not something taught or, con- or condoned, or he's just giving it as an example. What most scholars believe was going on, because in Corinth there was a plague at this time, and there, there's some talk about that in 1 Corinthians also, and there were a lot of problems going on, and people would get saved, and before they could get baptized, they would die. Okay, And so somebody from the family was symbolically getting baptized in their place. Okay, they just had some kind of tradition going on there. It's not a big deal. It doesn't teach us that we should be doing that or anything like that. He's just latching on to an example of something they're doing in Corinth. And he says, so why are you doing this? You know, why, 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 you know we could apply it to anybody. What, what's the point of getting baptized? You know, what was really the point of Ryan and Ramona's wedding ceremony yesterday? I mean, it was beautiful. They were beautiful. But what's what's the point of it if you're not going to be raised from the dead? (laughs) What's the point of anything if you're not going to be raised from the dead? He says, otherwise what will those do who are baptized for the dead if the dead are not raised at all? Why then are they baptized for them? Now listen to this. Why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. We've just gone through the book of Acts, and you know the life that Paul led. And he said, the source of my courage is this faith, this hope that I have. It's a hope based on God's word that I will be raised from the dead so I'm not afraid of death because it can't stop me. I can obey God. I'm free. Do you know what freedom there comes when you're not afraid of death? When you're not afraid of losing your fortune or your house or your life or anything because you know it can't be lost. It's already in Christ Jesus, so I can't lose anything. So I'm not afraid anymore. I'm not talking about some kind of lunatic that just, doesn't, you know, just does dangerous and stupid things. You don't see that in the book of Acts. You don't see Paul or Peter going around and inviting persecution on themselves or looking for opportunities to be persecuted. But if you will obey God, then in this life, you will be persecuted, the Bible says. Because the hope of this world is always at war, with Christ in us, the hope of glory. So he says, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? I don't know if he means here uh, that he literally fought with wild beasts. We don't have an account of that, but there are other accounts in Scripture where that could have happened. I think what he means, because he uses this language metaphorically, that when he fought with the wild beasts of religion, because those are the people that fought against him in Ephesus, What was the point of me taking the stand I took in Ephesus if there's no resurrection from the dead? What does it profit me? I mean, in the end, am I going to take anything with me? In the end, will I take my house and my cars and my money and all that stuff with me? You know, if you're just starting out, you're in school, you're going to college or something like this, I know you're focused on a lot of things you want to do and you want to get in this life. But the closer you get toward the end, listen to some of these older people. They can tell you. You start realizing none of that matters. (laughs) All that ever really mattered were relationships, love, and the things that are so important in life. That's the only thing that's going to go with you. Love. Love. Faith, hope, and love. These three. Everything else is going to be gone. So you're not going to take it with you. So if there's no resurrection from the dead, what's the point of it all then? But there is a resurrection from the dead. If the dead are not raised, he said... Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Now listen to this very carefully. Just listen. Do not be deceived. And then he gives a quote. The quote's actually from a Greek poet, somebody that was very revered in Corinth. But it's in the Bible, so this is from God. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Maybe you had good intentions in the beginning, But your good intentions and your good morals have been corrupted by wasting too much time in Facebook or whatever else it is, by listening to all the wrong things and hanging out, even if it's just online, with probably all the more so if it's online, with all the wrong people. Listening to the news instead of listening to the Word of God. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded, he says, as you ought. Literally, it says, sober up righteously. Do you not know that you have been made one with Christ? Sober up. What do drunk people do? You know what drunk people are like. You know what drug addicts are like when they're high, drunks when they're drunk. They don't function properly, do they? And so he's talking to the Christians in the church. He's talking to us today. You're walking around through this life stumbling around like a bunch of non-functional people because you're living your life the way the world lives their lives. Instead of living your life according to the call of God upon your life, have this attitude in you that was in Christ Jesus. He says, sober up. Sober up righteously and stop sinning and then he says something painful. I'm sure for them to hear. For some of you have no knowledge of God, and I speak this to your shame. I think that word's really important for us today, that we hear that word in our hearts, that it would just be before our eyes. I don't want to stand before God in shame. I don't want to stand before God uh, as someone who's who's failed. I don't want. I don't like I've said many times. I don't know what weeping and gnashing of teeth is and I don't want to know what it is. I don't want to have regrets before God. I don't want to miss out on the things that he has for me in this life because I was afraid of death, because I was afraid of failure, because my focus was on things that are temporary. Yom Kippur is a a feast day that was instituted to speak of something for the future, of something that is coming. The blood of Christ speaks of this. We're almost done, but go with me over to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. Now there's a lot in Hebrews 9, 10, and 11 about Yom Kippur. And I don't have time to look at it all. But I'm giving you all these extra scriptures because if you want to study this and read this, I really believe the Holy Spirit will speak a lot to you in this. At some point we're going to do a series on the book of Hebrews too, because I really want to. But in Hebrews chapter 9, look at verse 1. It says, "Now." Even the first covenant uh, had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. Hebrews 9.1. So there are regulations concerning divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. We talked about those regulations today. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table. The lampstand is that thing we call menorah, right? And the table with the sacred bread, the showbread, and this is called the holy place. And behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the holy of holies. I talked about that. Having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod which budded. It speaks of the authority of the high priest, by the way. There's so much stuff in there. It's a lot. And the tables of the covenant. That's the Ten Commandments on the tablets. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. And this last sentence gets me out of explaining all this to you this morning. But of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. There's not enough time. Okay? But here's something I do want to speak, not in detail about, but real quickly about. If you know anything about the structure of the tabernacle, if you remember this from Sunday school or you saw it on your little chart in the back of your Bible or whatever you know that actually this thing that's called here the golden altar in verse 4 it's not in the holy of holies it's actually in the holy place okay right there in my bible it says that the holy of holies has a golden altar of incense and that makes it sound like the writer of hebrews didn't know what they were talking about but they do know what they're talking about obviously because there's a different meaning in this it's really important to us this morning. So in the outer tabernacle, in the holy place, where they would go every single day, there's this altar that's covered over with gold. It's a golden altar. And what they would do on that altar is they never sacrificed animals on that altar. They burned incense on the altar. And smoke would rise up before God every single day. And the Bible tells us that these are the prayers of the saints. This is the worship of the saints before God. Maybe you didn't smell the incense this morning. Maybe you didn't see the smoke this morning. But when we worshiped God this morning, I very much sense in my my spirit that there was burning incense in this place. Smoke rising up before God. It lingers in this place right now. The presence of God is in this place. And this worship goes up before God every single day. But I could go into the Old Testament, take the time to show this to you, but just listen to me. That altar of incense, even though this is so important, listen, even though that altar of incense is located on the outer tabernacle, where, it people, where the priest goes every single day, okay, it doesn't belong to the outer tabernacle. It says that it belongs to the inner tabernacle, where only the high priest can go once a, once a year. It belongs there. You think that you came to 307 Broadway this morning. You think that this is the, pres- the, the, the mercy seat, the place where God meets with man. That's actually not true. You come here, and like some kind of sci-fi movie, when you worship God, and you walk into the presence of God, you're transported to the throne room. We meet with God there in heaven. We just don't see that yet, because we're still locked in these old bodies. But the resurrection, this great hope that Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you, so that where I am, you may be also. And in the book of Revelation, where's the new Jerusalem? It comes down out of heaven. It comes down onto this earth. We are meeting with God this morning right here, but we're actually right there with him. It's the kingdom of God on this earth that we don't see yet, but we walk in that kingdom in heaven. So what are we afraid of? What kind of death could we ever fear? What is it that's stopping us from obeying God, from being obedient to God, from taking upon ourselves this attitude that Christ Jesus had? Feeling, it literally says in the Greek, and in the, in the Russian translation it comes out really good, because what it says in the Greek. You should feel inside of yourself the same things that Christ feels. It's not just an attitude. It's a feeling. It's something deep on the inside of you. That he did not consider his equality with God something to be grasped at. That he considered obedience to God to be the main thing. So this holy place, this holy of holies, it stands as a picture of this day of atonement. The Blood, if you remember, had to be put on to that altar, the golden altar, the golden altar of worship. And this altar is a door of worship between the people of God and the presence of God. It daily burns, but one time, the high priest would come once a year and put blood upon it, and the people didn't have to do anything. Our only service is to worship God the scripture says in Hebrews chapter 13 if you look over there real quick Hebrews chapter 13 verse 12 Hebrews 13 verse 12 it says therefore Jesus also that he might sanctify the people through his own blood suffered outside the gate so let us go out to him outside the camp bearing his reproach For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing for with such sacrifices God is pleased. That's it. That's just how simple it is. That's the whole of our Christian life in a nutshell. Number one, We go out to Jesus. We go out to him. We don't stay inside, sheltering in place, afraid of Jesus. We go out to Jesus. And Jesus is not sheltering in place today. Out of an abundance of caution. Jesus is on the move today. Jesus is coming back today. He's not coming back, uh, you know, as some kind of mild-mannered Hollywood movie Jesus. When he comes back, he's coming back as the Lord of hosts. He's coming back as a military Jesus. (laughs) The scripture tells us that he's coming back as a conquering Jesus on a white horse. And there's only this day for us to go out to him. And when we go out to him, we go out bearing a cross. But that cross is the way to victory. So go out to him speaks of courage. Seek the city. It speaks of what's our priorities in life, what's our focus in life. Are we seeking the good of a city on the earth or the good of the city in heaven? Most of us, I'm just being honest, spend most of our time thinking about politics when we're talking about city life, because city life is all about citizens, city sons that's where the word comes from, city life, and what can we do to make our citizen life here on this earth better? How much do we think about the kingdom of God? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. So seek the city. Go out to him. Seek the city. And then bring a sacrifice. What's the sacrifice? It's so easy. It's just praise and worship. Just praise and thanksgiving to God. Like Alex said this morning, just bring, say thank you to God first. This speaks about what we talk about. You have this attitude in you which is in Christ Jesus. Most of your attitude and your feelings is based on what you actually say out of your mouth. If you just shut your mouth sometimes and then open it and say God's word, your feelings would get better. And I'm, not, I'm not being rude. I'm talking to myself too. I know that. Yeah, I can just dig myself a grave with my own mouth. And then I'm stuck way down in there. <laughs> oh God, I'm sorry. And I realize nobody did this to me. I did this to myself. Because I wasn't speaking praise and thanksgiving to God. You know, the old count your many blessings. How many things are there, though? Every day that you can just say, thank you, God, for this. No matter what else has happened, thank you, God, for this. Yesterday, we're going down the road to the reception. Just got a brand new windshield on the Toyota. 400 bucks. And here comes a big truck barreling through Mason, probably 80 miles an hour. I don't know. It didn't slow down at all. And a rock, right in the middle of the windshield. I'm like, argh, argh, the cross, I'm so mad. <laughs> not because I'm just, I'm like, idiot, what does he think he's doing? <laughs> and then and Tanya said, well, thank God that we're okay. And I thought, yeah, you're, you're right. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just a little chip in a windshield. You know, it's not that big of a deal at the end of the day. And then I said to her, yeah, thank God it's right in the middle of the windshield, not where you have to look when you're driving, so. So, I mean, there's always something you can thank God for, right? Our attitude is based upon that. And then the last thing it says is that we should bring a sacrifice of doing good and sharing with each other. Just as Jesus shared his body and shared his blood with us. And this all has to do with the life we live of love. That's just how simple it is. We don't have to do anything for our salvation. Christ did everything for our salvation. And that salvation has come, is coming, and will come. In Hebrews 9.8, it says that this is until the time of reformation. That speaks of the resurrection. In Hebrews 9.11, it says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, future, through his own blood, he entered the holy place once and for all. You don't have to do anything. He did everything. Having obtained eternal redemption, The blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God will cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You should not have a problem with your conscience. In your conscience and in your heart, it should be cleansed and you should know that I am walking in righteousness before God. Not that you don't fail, you don't do mistakes, nobody has a, I'm to be really honest, as Christians, you're not going to have a problem with your conscience because you committed a sin today. What you're going to do is ask God to forgive you. Confess your sin before God, because everybody does it every day. Everybody fails in something, right? You're not going to have a, that's not going to be the problem. The problem with your conscience is going to come when you chicken out. When you don't have the guts to do what God's calling you to do and you compromise, that's the thing that eats away on the inside. I mean, you know, I know it in my personal life. How many of you lay there in bed at some point and say, man, why didn't I speak up? I had the perfect opportunity to speak up for Jesus. You know, why didn't I take a stand then? Why did I chicken out? You know, why did I bow to the peer pressure? And, and you make that, the only good thing about that is it feels so bad, you think, I ain't never doing that again. Next time I'll speak up. Because it re- let, let the blood of Christ cleanse your conscience. You can have a good conscience, or you can have a really not so good con- conscience. Because God wants us to walk in this. He shed his blood for us. Leviticus 17.11 says that the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your lives. In the blood of Jesus. In Hebrews 9.24 it says men must die. It is appointed unto man once to die. Mark it on your calendar. Somewhere. Sometime. You're going to die, and after that comes a judgment. And it's not going to to be judged by your neighbors or by your peers. You're going to be judged before Christ is appointed to die, and after this comes a judgment. But Christ was offered once, it says. He took on himself the judgment of God for all men, and he's coming again without sin a second time, To bring salvation to all those who eagerly await him. To those who are seeking the city. To those who have gone out to him. You're going to be saved. I promise you, everything's going to be okay. (laughs) It's going to be way better than okay. You should have your hope fixed on this, whatever you go through in this life. Once for all. Christ has sat down at the right hand of God, Hebrews ten thirteen, And he's waiting until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. He's coming back to make his enemies a footstool for his feet. All the powers of this age that are arranged against you in this life, I promise you there's coming a day when Christ will deal with it all. So don't be afraid to stand for Jesus. Jesus doesn't need you to offer your own life up as a sacrifice for sin. It says in Hebrews 10.18 that where there's forgiveness, there's no longer any offering for sin. It says in Hebrews that uh, in the Day of Atonement, because they offered this sacrifice up every single year, that there was a reminder of sins. A reminder of sins. But in the blood of Jesus, you know there's no reminder of your sin. If you have what's called a sin consciousness this morning, you need that conscious, consciousness, which is the same as your conscience. That consciousness needs to be cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Stop focusing on your sin. Stop focusing on your failure. Stop making this, as they say these days, all about you. Because it's not all about you. It's all about Jesus. And Jesus is all about you, but this is all about Jesus. And when your focus is on Jesus, his focus is on you. And you have a righteousness consciousness. You see yourself. You can boldly say that I am the righteousness of God in Christ. I have been bought by the blood of the Lamb. And where there is already a sacrifice for sin, God doesn't need your sacrifice anymore. He doesn't need you to crawl through glass. He doesn't need to whip yourself with whips. You know, he doesn't need you to do something to make atonement for your sin because you can't make atonement for your sin. He has already done that. He just wants you to walk in that oneness of being the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus and hold on to that in your lives. How do we hold on to that? By giving him thanks, by giving him praise, by loving one another with all of our hearts courageously. By going out to Jesus and taking a stand for Jesus. By seeking his kingdom first and not the things of this earth. Putting Jesus in the first place. Let's stand together. I'm going to invite the worship team up here and the communion servers. Before you leave, we want to remind you that if you want to continue receiving updates on new sermons, that you subscribe to our podcast. If you want more information on how to contact us, make sure to check out our website at youringtonvillianfellowship.com. And we'll see you next time on the YBF Podcast.